0: radio.ie hosts the irish history show podcast because history matters radio turns 100 years young this year radio's history is powered by radio archives for radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio visit radio.ie
1: Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and please check out radio.ie for all your radio archiving solutions. You can visit our website, IrishHistoryShow.ie, for a full archive of all our previous episodes. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash The Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. If you hear an episode you like, please share it on your social media. We really do appreciate it and we're so grateful for all the support we get from you, the listeners. On this episode of the show, my co-presenter John Dorney from TheIrishStory.com discussed the IRA in Dublin during the War of Independence. John was joined by Liz Gillis and James Brady.
2: Hello and welcome to The Irish History Show. And today, it's just me, John Dorney. Kyle Brennan is indisposed, but we'll get him back soon enough. I'm joined by two very interesting guests today, Liz Gillis and James Brady. And we're going to be talking about Dublin during the Irish War of Independence. Liz is the author of multiple books on the Irish Revolution, including a book on the Hales Brothers, Women of the Irish Revolution, The Fall of Dublin in 1922, and May 25th, the burning of the Customs House. James Brady concentrates on South County Dublin, which was a separate unit, really, of the IRA, the 6th Battalion at the time, and his book published last year with the 6th Battalion, South County Dublin and the Irish War of Independence. So we're going to be discussing Dublin city and county in this podcast. Guys, you're both very welcome to the show. And Liz, I'm just going to start with you. How important, Liz, was Dublin to the Irish Revolution? Was it central to events that that happened here after the Rising?
3: Thanks a million, John, for having us on the show. Following 1916, you have the whole period of reorganisation and the assassination war certainly Dublin leads the way there. You know, we have the forced assassinations taking place mid 1919. Um, In terms of barracks attacks and so on though, we have to look to the the country units, Kerry and so on in 1918. They were up and running at that stage and then of course culminates with with Solo headbag on 21st of January 1919. In terms of uh, sort of operations being directed from Dublin though, I know there was, they tried GH Q. when it's set up tries to you know direct control to the country units but it, it just wasn't feasible so Dublin is a different sort of war zone in terms of the conflict, the way the war is fought. Um, it's dominated by the assassinations in 1919 and throughout 1920. It's raids for arms, but if you look at what happens in the country units, it is the attacks on the uh, RIC barracks. The RAC are the, the dominant focus of the IRA there. Where Dublin does lead the charge is in April 1920, when GHU orders the nationwide attacks on the local income tax offices around the country and the evacuated RIC barracks. But it just seems that it's local commanders directing to their situation the way the conflict uh, should be carried out.
2: And James, you know, is Dublin important and does it have outsized important stuff that happens in Dublin because it's the capital city of the country, including under British rule, and because all the major political and military commands of the Republican movement are based there?
0: Dublin's very important. I think the county itself, the formation of the 6th Battalion, the South County Dublin Battalion, is there really to to act as, I suppose, what would have been described as as a strong flanking unit. So following the creation of the ASU and the company patrol in Dublin, the tempo of attacks on Crown Forces increases in the city. And coinciding with this, South County Dublin's formed into its own battalion area in November 1920. So while there'd been quite a lot of activity out here prior to the formation of the battalion, it's not until the beginning of 1921 that attacks on Crown forces really begin in earnest out here. Andy MacDonald, who's O.C. of the 6th Battalion, is given instructions by Brigadier Dick McKee uh, shortly before McKee's death at the hands of auxiliaries on Bloody Sunday to keep things moving in the district. The battalion to be seen as playing a vital role in hampering the activities of Crown forces by drawn personnel from the city. The battalion covers an area stretching from Mary and Gates to Bray. This would have extended west to Dundrum and Milltown, also incorporated the, the Dublin Mountain District, Sandyford, Ticknock and Barnaculia. So an area roughly similar to today's Dunirri Down, but also incorporating a part of North Wicklow. It was initially part of Joseph O'Connor's 3rd Battalion, um, which covered an area south of the Liffey from Camden Street to the Grand Canal and would have stretched all the way south through the South County into North Wicklow. So in early 1917, O'Connor makes a concerted effort to reorganise the county. There's two active companies in the district this time. Uh, there's one in Dunleary and another in Dundrum, a series of dispersed and, and disorganised units. And he dispatches two young officers, Andy Macdonald and Mick Chadwick, out here to help with reorganisation. And, and they effectively spend the next three years touring the area by bicycle, helping to get units in, in different districts of the company's strength. And Liz, James has talked to us there about
2: the 6th Battalion, which is in the rural kind of South County Dublin. Can you talk to us about the city units of the IRA in Dublin?
3: Yeah, so you had five battalions in the city area. So the 1st and 2nd operated on the north side. The dividing line would be O'Connell Street, Fourth Battalion, O'Connell Street, all the way out to Church Street area, Blackhall Place, all of that area. 2nd Battalion, O'Connell Street, all the way down to the, the docks. The third and 4th were on the south side of the city, as uh, James mentioned. The third Battalion, Camden Street, all the way out to Wicklow, And then the 4th Battalion was Camden Street, out as far as and Rathfarnham. And then the 5th Battalion was the engineers and they were made up, or that was made up of men from all of the different units, all the different battalions and their specific job would be engineering. and Then, of course, we had on. There were a number of branches of on Nafina were very active as well. And then, of course, the citizen army, the remnants of the citizen army were still active there, certainly around the east wall, the Docklands area. So that's the makeup of the city battalion um, at that time.
2: Yeah, now we're not going to go into depth on it today, but there's also a Fingal brigade in the north county as well.
3: Yeah, so you have the whole of the city and county of Dublin represented in by the War of Independence. Everywhere is represented with units.
2: Do we have ideas of the numerical kind of strength, guys, on, on uh, Republican fighting organisations in the city?
0: I know the 6th Battalion would have had a couple of hundred, maybe maybe 500 members.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the military pensions have, have really inflated figures as far as I've seen. You know, you're talking about four or 5,000, but the number of active uh, men and women is a lot lower, though, isn't it?
3: I suppose, John, the thing to remember as well is that it was a part-time army. So the figures I've, because I've used them in relation to the Custom House and the aftermath of the Custom House that, as you say, four or 5,000, with probably about 600 in prison. But it was a part time volunteer army. So maybe the numbers aren't actually too inflated because it was men. If you notice the way the ambush that carried out in the newspapers, like sort of reflect this, is that ambushes take place, you know, first thing in the morning, um, in the evening, in mid afternoon, when people, you know, are available to carry out those attacks, those harassing the enemy. And certainly after Bloody Sundown, once the active service unit is created, that's the full time unit which was a core unit of 50 men, full-time paid units that bring the fight to the enemy. But you then see, once you come into 1921, all of the battalions are told to up your game, increase the attacks at every opportunity, and certainly the 3rd Battalion really, really ups its game. Um, the 4th Battalion really comes into its own later in 1921 so the volunteers are there but they're just not full-time soldiers so the military pensions and the membership roles it probably is inflated but it's not possibly not too much because it's part-time soldiers. Whereas with cumming on, I think the membership there would be more accurate because they were just doing everything, you know, dispatch carrying forest aid and so on. And so you might have a more accurate picture in relation to them on in the sea.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, you know, membership is obviously going to fluctuate over time because
0: people go to prison and some people are
2: killed as well, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. But I, I think, and, and Liz pointed out there, that there's only ever a core, a small core group within every company who are engaged in what you would term active service, who are engaged in combat. So for the overwhelming bulk of volunteers, the mainstay of their activity is providing an auxiliary role. And I mean, this is due in part to, to lack of weaponry. But for most volunteers, the bulk of their activity during the War of Independence consists of blocking roads or, or cutting telegraph wires or, or carrying dispatches or whatnot. So there is only ever a small number that are engaged in in armed operations against criminal forces.
2: Yeah, I mean that's the nature of guerrilla warfare, I think as well. Liz, if I can go to you, I mean. Can we talk about the command of the Dublin Brigade? Because one of the unusual things about Dublin is you have the command of the Dublin Brigade, but separately you also have IRA GHQ based in the city. So how does that work?
3: Yeah, it's interesting because GHQ does try to, you know, stamp its authority all over the Dublin Brigade and direct, you know, the activities. But I think under Dick McKee's leadership, when he was commandant of the Dublin Brigade, his personality, he just had that charisma with the volunteer units that literally if he said do this lads you know it it was done and he's very astute as to what attacks should take place but also the people that were in charge of the the battalions companies the local companies they were using their initiative because they knew their localities, they knew the strength of what could happen in their area. Paddock Clancy, when the 4th Battalion, no, he's involved in the raid on Constown Airdrome. So local commanders really direct what happens where GHQ nearly messes things up is with the active service unit when that was greatest because this was a a full-time unit so it's purely set up to bring the fight to the enemy and GHQ they say you can't just go on a whim and carry out these attacks you have to tell us what you're going to plan and you know we'll sanction this and so on and in one of the earlier attacks carried out by the active service unit the section was nearly actually arrested the whole unit was nearly arrested because there's four sections of the active service unit and matched the the battalions with four sections to match those city units and the active service unit went hang on a minute this ain't happening the whole premise of this organization is you seize the opportunity and you attack and you disappear we can't be waiting around for days watching the patrol going up and down and then ask you can we attack this and then you give us the sanction because it's proven to be you know they really got out by the skin of their teeth so uh, that doesn't last long and the active service then unit they then take the initiative if they see an opportunity to attack the enemy they will. So it was a short-lived attempt by the GHQ to sort of control the situation, and they nearly messed her up.
2: Yeah, it was. as you were speaking, Liz, I was just thinking, you know, micromanaging a guerrilla unit is really not a good idea. You know, you have to be agile and secret, so...
3: Exactly, John, yeah.
2: (laughs) I mean, but one other thing I was going to say to you, Liz, before I go back to James, is, you know, one difference, I think, between Dublin and the provinces is GHQ can actually order these big operations, like I'm thinking of Bloody Sunday in the customs houses and things like that. I don't think that happens anywhere else in the country.
3: No, John, no. And, of course, we have to think of communications back then. To send a report of, you know, a proposed ambush from Bandon to attack some, you know, the Essage Regiment or so on up to Dublin to wait for that permission to come through. It wasn't feasible. Not the way this conflict was fought. But in Dublin, you have that immediacy. Literally, you can call Joseph O'Connor to Parnell Street. You can meet them in Harcourt Street. It's that time frame is taken out of it. So you do have that immediacy of access to your committance of the city units. But in terms of the country units, when you have leaders like Tom Barry, uh, the Total West Cork Brigade, so on leaders that would take the initiative they knew the situation in their areas and GHQ despite their best efforts they had to give that control to the localities because in Dublin, you don't know what is happening down in West Cork, in Clare and so on. It's so important to have really strong leaders in those positions and those units then prove themselves, you know, because we know just look at the newspapers and what was happening around the country in nineteen twenty um and nineteen twenty one.
2: And James, if I can come to you then, I mean, is the 6th Battalion, which is in a kind of a semi-rural area south of the city at the time, is it a bit more semi-detached than the Dublin Brigade from the national leadership?
0: Yeah, to some degree. So the active service unit that's established in Dublin doesn't encompass the 6th Battalion. So I think a lot of it falls down to, like Liz was saying, on local initiative and the initiative of OCs and the officer staff and different areas. So the 6th Battalion split into eight different companies, Dundrum, the Dublin Mountains, Bray, Dunleary, Blackrock, Deans Grange, Dawkey, and Anenskerry Company is, is formed from the Bray Company in, in May 1921. The most inactive companies, just to give an example, in, in terms of offensive military operations, were the Mountain Company, so Ticknock, Barnacolia, and possibly the Dawkey Company. Bray also came in for criticism from Paddy Brennan of Dundrum, who was later O.C. in South Dublin during the Civil War. Although Brennan and the, the O.C. of Bray Larry O'Brien seem to have had a long-standing personal dislike for each other, which lasted long after the Civil War. So I, I take a bit of what Brennan says with scepticism. I believe inactivity in the mountains and in Doggy owed largely to the lack of military or police installations within the company areas. So Brennan believed that the, the terrain in the mountains proved problematic owing to the lack of good roads or by roads and the country being too open for ambush ambush positions. I I would have imagined that the terrain around the mountains would have been ideal, but um, he says otherwise. In later years, Brennan was also critical of the general kind of calibre of the, the mountain company's volunteers. And he believed that the officer staff were generally capable but and i quote they were hampered by the poor type of men they had to deal with they were heavy set men from working in the quarries sledging rocks all day what you needed was a light little fella who could run the tick men and the Barnaculliers were too heavy-footed in spite of being mountainy men So he reckoned that from sledging rocks and parties all day, these stone cutters weren't uh, the right build for guerrilla warfare. By far the most active company in South County Dublin was the Dean's Grange company. And that encompassed Cabin Teeley, Fox Rock, Dean's Grange, Corners Court kind of area. And there's an interesting kind of evolution when you look at this company. So, in July 1918, about 20 of them received summonses to appear in court in Dunleary on charges of drilling at their, their local hall. They'd been observed and, and identified by local constable. On receipt of the summonses, they're ordered up to the Dublin Mountains by Andy MacDonald, and they set up a camp in Kellystown and later in the, the pine forests of uh, Tibraton Mountain, and they remain on the run of the mountain for two months before the camp's dispersed. So while they're not engaged in any armed activity in the mountains per se, there's strong bonds formed there between them, and the following year, Twenty-two of the same company are arrested in Kiltiernan while they're returning from all night maneuvers in Glen Cullen. They get six months, they each get six months in prison. And I've no doubt that the time spent in the mountain camps and the subsequent prison experience would have really kind of hardened their result. And you can see this when attacks on the RIC begin in 1921. It's these men that are to the forefront of that campaign. And they eventually form themselves into what they themselves termed as a column. Now, not a flying column or an active service unit in the classic sense, but a small group of men that sleep away from home and, I suppose, harass the enemy at any given opportunity. Yet, by far, this would have been the most, most active company and I would say it has a direct—it's a direct result of their experiences in the in the early years, uh, the 1918, 1919 years, as opposed to other volunteers in the district who I suppose you, you could say would have had it a little bit easier.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's that whole thesis, isn't there, about how radicalization sets in from early activism, and, and that gets the ball rolling, and that's supposed to be the the driving force in lots of areas. But if I can step away for a second from the military side, Liz, you know, Mao Zedong famously said that the gorilla is a a fish that swims in the sea, and the sea is the public support. So how strong was public support for the Republican cause in Dublin? And let's, judging by elections, first of all, I'd say, no?
3: Yeah, well, 1918 is the the, the turning point. Like, you you have that sea change after 1916, but with the anti-conscription campaign that takes place, like the British really scored an own goal with this. Um, they drive people into the, supporting uh, Sinn Fein. Um, now Sinn Fein obviously we're on the rise, but you know when you have this <laughs> this threat coming from the British government that they're going to start conscripting Irishmen into the British army, it provides such a, an amazing opportunity for the republican movement to get more people into the fold, which is exactly what happens. And then of course the the shining example of this success is. Sinn Fein's you know success of the nineteen eighteen general election, but in terms of the military campaign and that support from the people, it was slow and it's amazing that when you look at the reaction to the killings of the policemen in Tipperary, everyone comes out and you know attacks this. you know there isn't really that much support for it, but then by the time of the assassinations of the DMP men when they begin in July. August 1919, public opinion has changed now it's not a widespread support there is a lot of shock at this you know these assassinations are carried out in some cases in broad daylight there's one dmp manager man and he's shot at his house like literally as he's going into his front door but then you've got the reaction to these events from the authorities from the crown forces and everyone is suspected as being you know with shin fainer which is the usual thing that the british do and it's the reaction that again, sends more people to support Sinn Féin. So then by the time we come to 1920, 1921, although people are horrified by, you know, the events that take place, the support for the Republican movement is there for from the majority of the people.
2: Yeah, I mean, what people forget, I think, as well, a little bit is, you know, how dramatic a change this is. But even in 1918, you still have a unionist, maristocra being elected in Rathmines. So Dublin is not just a Republican city by any means. And James, if I can come to you on this, you know, the part of the county that you're talking about was quite considerably protestant with a very considerable unionist vote wasn't it
0: It definitely yeah yeah And, and i suppose in terms of the war of independence period dunleary and south county dublin is usually associated with the unionist tradition but republican support in the south county is stronger than people are led to believe so it's an area with a strong unionist and constitutional nationalist support base as late as 1910 the South County constituency returns a unionist MP in the form of Sir Walter Long. Protestants form a significant minority in the area and would have been overrepresented in the higher strata society. So just to give an example, compared to less than 20% of Protestant population for Dublin city in electoral wards like Kingstown East and Glassstool, Protestants make up 30 to 35% of the population. In Monkstown, Catholics are in a minority, actually a minority. Many... Volunteer accounts in different parts of the county attest to volunteers operating in what they would have described as hostile territory. And I don't necessarily believe that they're just referring to Protestants. Porter Gates pointed out it was a support of middle class Catholics that enabled unionists to hold on to their seats in the district. Larry Nugent, one of the founders of the Volunteers in Dundrum, maintained that his company didn't receive any support from what he would have described as the well-to-do people with the exception of a nationalist county councillor whose interest he viewed with great suspicion. This is pre-1916. Mick Chadwick, who was vice OC of the 6th Battalion, believed that anyone who had money was hostile, to put it, and every house had a connection with the British Army. But notwithstanding that, like you say, with the analogy of the fish needing the water, I don't believe it would have been possible for the IRA to operate on the scale that they did without the goodwill of a sizable number of the population. I think the the elections, the 1918 and 1920 elections, offer a counter-narrative to the widely held view that the South County was a solidly unionist area. There were effectively three electoral constituencies in South County Dublin during the 1918 general election. So the overwhelming majority fell into the South County constituency, where George Gavin Duffy runs as Sinn Féin candidate. Bray falls into North Wicklow, where Sean Echigam runs, and Milltown, Dundrum, and Sandyford are part of the Pembroke constituency, where Desmond Fitzgerald is chosen to stand. Sinn Féin weren't actually going to run a candidate in Pembroke initially, because they felt it would split the nationalist vote and give the seat to unionists. There's a hard-fought campaign in these districts, The volunteer machinery is utilised to the full and all three candidates top the poll in their respective areas. In the 1920 elections to the urban district councils, Sinn Féin take a quarter of seats in Dunleary and Bray. They take a third of seats in Blackrock and Dalky and they don't fare so well in Killiney-Ballybrack where they they take only two of 12 seats. Uh, On a side note, it's worth pointing out that the Sinn Féin candidate, Josephine Cantwell, became the first woman elected to public office in Dunleary during these elections these are followed by successes in the rural and district council elections to the poor law guardians in June and from the summer onwards what you start seeing is strenuous efforts made to kind of republicanize local issues and the most famous of uh, which being the reverting of the name Kingstown back to its original name of Donleary following a motion from a from a Sinn Fein councillor Sean O'Houdy you also start to see the establishment of Repub- republican parish courts and the emergence of the Republican police, uh, who are increasingly called upon to intervene in in criminal cases. So in the, the likes of Brave, and I quote, weekend rowdyism have become a regular occurrence. Volunteers are called upon by the council to enforce licensing laws, which they managed to do with great success.
2: And Liz, I mean, in the city itself, is there much evidence of the Republican police and the dog courts operating?
3: It's later on, and Simon Donnelly is one of the key figures in the Republican police, but it it's certainly from late 1920 onwards that you have that. But you have a lot of the women sitting as Republican judges in the courts. So again, it sort of like mimics what was happening in the country that once they're set up, the people do tend to go to the Republican courts rather than the established courts.
2: Yeah, I mean, one other thing I want to get in there, Liz, before we kind of move on a little bit is, you know, the role of social class in support for kind of republicanism. Now, you made a good point there that political support is not necessarily the same as support for violence. But one contrast that strikes me anyway is at the time of the rising and subsequently you have a great conflict between the volunteers and coming to man and what they call the separation women, which is relatives, including male relatives, actually, or people serving in the British Army. And that does seem to kind of dry up, though, doesn't it? Or am I wrong?
3: No it does John, and it's amazing, like how you see that change, and again, I think nineteen eighteen is a turning point for everyone, just looking at my area, like the liberties and so on, that was a real you know it's it's a republican heartlands um although the fourth battalion sort of is slow to be involved in big attacks certainly by 1921 they are open their game in the working class areas you have that great support like you look at the east wall area the, the docklands there's a huge connection to the citizen army and that goes right back, you know, that you've got Labour tied in with that, the trade union movement tied in with that. So in working class areas, you do have that support from the people. And, you know, you just look at the membership um, of the, the unit and there is an awful lot of people from these areas that are involved and the network of safe houses that are there coming from people, you know, who they're not involved, but they will provide the safety and the support there for the volunteers and coming them on so Paddy Butner put it in a great way just in terms of class because we do have that class issue between the volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army in the way that the makeup of the two organizations was and he said he was a member of the Citizen Army Boy Scouts in 1916 and he says the difference between the volunteers and the Citizen Army they were the students they were the engineers and so on we were the bottle washers but the difference was we had the women And that is a huge difference with the Citizen Army in that you had the women there beside the men. And the thing with the women was, it was women from all classes that were involved and members of the Irish Citizen Army.
2: Just one more point before we move on on the politics, James, I'm going to come back to you for a sec, is, you know, what's the role of Labour? And I'm talking about organised Labour here in the trade union movement with regard to the Republican movement in the period.
0: Well, Labour are quite active, certainly in the South County, but... There isn't too close a relationship there other than some individual cases. They, they don't necessarily work hand in hand. Obviously, Labour step aside in the, the 1918 general election. The 1920 local elections, they're back in the mix. For the urban district councils in the South County, they take 17 out of 84 seats compared to Sinn Fein's 23. So they're they're equally as strong. And, you know, you could say nearly, nearly equally as popular. And they do, you do see Labour figures on the, in the Republican courts, local Labour leaders and local trade union, ITGWU representatives. Labour in Dunleary, like I mean, during the lockout, there were strikes out this way. Keaton's Coal Yard in Dunleary would have been a major one. And there were quite a number of arrests and there were quite a number of kind of heated confrontations between the police, the striking workers. James Byrne. Who was a labor organizer from Dunleary was imprisoned in late 1913, where he went, he underwent a hunger strike in, in Mount Joy and died. He was hospitalized as a result of it in Monks Hospital and he died. So that would have been the scene of, of, of a large demonstration. Um, A couple of thousand people would have. Would have followed his funeral procession to Dean's Grange Cemetery. James Connolly gave an oration funeral. But their actual role in the War of Independence, they wouldn't have been too involved in sort of Republican activities from what I've come across anyway. Paddy Moran obviously was chairman of the Grocers and, and Vinders Union. He was a barman in Dunleary, in Laoghaire and Black Rock and he's executed in March 1921 for his role in the Bloody Sunday killings. He's actually convicted of a a killing he had no involvement in, but he was involved in, in the shootings that morning. He was involved in a, in a shooting in the Gresham Hotel. He's arrested in February 1920 in a labour dispute with another local union organiser, Paddy Meany. He's a barman in Goggins' pub in Monkstown, which is still there as Goggins'. And Paddy Meany is killed during the burning of Ballybrack Barracks, not long after that, a couple of months after that. Ballybrack Barracks is one of a number of evacuated RIC barracks in the district, which is burned by the IRA during the burning himself and another volunteer, Thomas Dunn, who was from Wicklow and uh, was living in Dawkey. Paddy Meaney himself was actually from Leyland Bridge in County Carlow. These two guys are actually trapped inside when the building is set alight. Uh, they suffer horrific burns and are taken to the city where, where they die a, a couple of days later.
2: And Liz, if I can come back to you and we go back now to the military side of the campaign, You know, the IRA's campaign in Dublin is relatively slow to get going in 1920,
3: isn't it? Yeah, again, I suppose it just goes to show the difference between Dublin and country units and who they are fighting against. And we have to remember Dublin was a garrison city. You know, it was a ring of steel around Dublin. The barracks that just completely surrounded the city so you have that huge military presence but then you have of course added to that is the police force G Division of the DMP although the DMP themselves sort of you know take a, a step back you do have DMP men that you know do continue to go after the IRA but the majority of the DMP don't really get involved in the conflict. And I suppose what dominates Dublin in the first half of the War of Independence is the assassination war it's the intelligence war you have the raids for arms and there's a lot of successful raids for arms Town in 1919 so you have it's like they're really getting organised but the key threat in Dublin in the immediate beginning of the conflict is the threat from G Division of the DNP, because those officers, those detectives can identify who are the key players that are involved in the volunteers uh, and the IRA. But then of course we come to 1920 and you have the arrival of the auxiliaries and that really does change the game. We have the reorganisation of the British intelligence thanks to the efforts of the IRA and the success of the IRA in assassinating G-men. so that is the game changer there um, and you see then the increase in attacks carried out by the ira in dublin but then you have with formation of the active service unit which james talked about earlier on in uh, december 1920 once they get going their sole purpose is to bring the war to the enemy at every given opportunity and the battalions are actually then told as well up your game and that's when you see the huge increase in the attacks in pretty much every area um, of Dublin city. 1920 and suppose we tend to forget what Dublin was like back then like the city was the between the canals so what we would you know Crumlin and so on where you have the RIC barracks they were being attacked by the units in their areas but their county Dublin at that stage rather than Dublin City so you do have these activities but it really is as you say 1920 the arrival of the auxiliaries changes everything and then once the formation of the active service unit takes place it's like Dublin then is like the rest of the country with these ambushes against the military. You know, Camden Street in the Torrid Battalion area, it, it's that area is called the Dardanelles because of the sheer level of attacks carried out by a company of the Tour Battalion against the military because Camden Street was the main artery for the military coming from Portobello Barracks, was now Calabriar Barracks, into the city. The the street is pretty much as it was. The laneways are still there and, and it got to Point that the people, the local residents, would know when an ambush was coming because they'd see the IRA and they'd just make themselves scarce. So all of a sudden, the the people themselves sort of take themselves out of that danger. It didn't mean that the people still weren't caught up in events, but that was one of the areas that was so so active where you have the IRA toward battalion carrying out attacks and the normal IRA units, not the active service unit, it's the ordinary volunteers that were carrying out those attacks.
2: And Liz, one more question on that. Can you give us a flavour like of a Dublin ambush? Because it has to be very quick, doesn't it, and and very anonymous.
3: It does. Literally a hit and run. You can't be sort of hanging around. And Joseph O'Connor, you know, is is really, you know, pushing this, but. So one example I'll give you is the attack on the LNWR Hotel in April 1921. It took place at 8 o'clock in the morning before people would be going to work. So that minimizes the amount of civilians that would be around. So you have the minimization of potential casualties. You attack quick and you disappear. Now, again, it's like these are local men. So they know the streets. They know the exit routes and so on because they are their street. A military tender would... Come down the street, have IRA waiting, you know, in the laneway, and you have the attacks, the grenade attacks. Um, so volunteers throwing a grenade at a military lorry, and then. That's, you know, the attack taking place. But then the authorities counter that by putting the wire mesh over the lorries, So the grenades will bounce off. Then the IRA adapt by putting the hooks on the grenades. So you still have that threat there. That it's still an effective weapon. And then what the authorities do is they start to carry hostages. And you have Josephine O'Keefe, who was a member of the anine and a Heron branch of Cuminamon. And she is one of those that has taken hostage. She was arrested at a football match in Crumlin where IRA men had been taken part in this football match and she saw the patrol of auxiliaries coming she got the word to the men the cumbres they got away but she was arrested and she was driven around the city because the potential for attack by the ira if they carried out an attack on the military then at this stage most likely they would kill one of their own now when the press get wind of this of course this all blows up the authorities then had to stop doing that but they did it for a short time so it's using your area knowing your locality the streets because you walk them every day using them to your advantage hit the military quickly and disappear and then of course you have the big ambushes like Brunswick Street and the in the evening of the 14th of March 1921 that was in response to the executions that had taken place in Mount Joy on that morning where the tour battalion were literally told get out attack anything that you see and the patrol of auxiliaries come down to raid and um, 144 pastry, and have that ambush or battle depending on what side you're looking at taking place so that's the nature of it use your localities use what your knowledge to your strength hit attack disappear
2: yeah, I mean, you you know, one thing that strikes me, Liz, I don't know if you'd agree with me, is that the things like the Pier Street ambush, the Brunswick Street ambush, which have kind of a prolonged shootout, are kind of a mistake because the auxiliaries happened across them. Like they wanted to attack them somewhere else, as far as I know.
3: It's team with that, John. Yeah, the, the auxiliaries don't know. Where to go Word have sent to them. That was a big meeting in 144. So it is like the IRA are told to get out and attack, but then you have the explosion. The and the volunteer Dolan, he goes up and throws a grenade at Peer Street Police Station. He's wounded. And it's like that's the alert. And then the auxiliaries are told there's gangs of fellows down at 144. So rather than going to, you know, Pierce Street Police Station where, you know, this guy, you know, wounded. They make directly for 144, which the IRA probably weren't expecting. And then you have this battle that, that takes place. But in terms of then, say, you know, events at Camden Street, it's the IRA that are using the initiative to just come out, attack, and it's on their terms.
2: And James, if I can come to you, you know, we can't talk about every incident, but we've had a flavour there of, you know, the guerrilla warfare in Dublin, hit and run, the small scale of it. Is the trajectory a bit different in the South County because you have a mixture of of urban and rural kind of there?
0: Yeah, I think for the most part, the fight in the South County is more akin to the conflict in rural areas, partly because it's characterised by attacks on RIC barracks. So unlike Dublin City, where policing is left to the DMP, who, aside from the G Division, there's a sort of an unofficial truce between the IRA and just your average DMP constable. Unlike the city, the county is policed by the RIC, who are effectively an armed quasi-paramilitary force, and they're backed up then by black and tan recruits during 1920, from 1920 onwards. So the barracks in South Dublin are heavily garrisoned, Dundrum, Cabin Tilly and Bray. From January to March 1921, there's a number of ambushes take place on military and police patrols. Again, like the city, they're hit-and-run affairs. So poorly equipped volunteers attacking a passing lorry are crossly tender. A very quick affair and they get out of there as quick as possible. There's one fairly intense shootout in February at Marion Gates where 11 volunteers attack the military postal lorry and its armoured car escort. And there's two civilians killed when soldiers return fire. There's an attack on military patrols then in in Dundrum and Shankill and an auxiliary patrol in Dunleary, and a a police foot patrol in Dundrum. But from April onwards, attacks on RIC barracks become a a regular occurrence. And yet they'd be far too numerous to mention individually. But what's interesting to note is that these attacks, they were never initiated for the purposes of, of capturing the buildings. So the barracks were sturdily built as I said, strongly garrisoned and situated in built-up areas and as well as the number of police and tans in the barracks far outweighing the number of men available for an attacking party, the defensive protections were, were impregnable against sort of homemade grenades and, and, and light armaments and often hostile population made it impossible to move a large body of men unnoticed. Paddy Brennan again points to the terrain of South County Dublin. He's talking with South County Dublin general now where he says the county has a number of main roads crisscrossed with a range of by-roads, uh, laneways, accommodation walls and two railway lines, meaning that you require considerable personnel to guard all the kind of, uh, to scout and guard laneways in order to prevent an attacking party being cut off and surrounded. And I think that's important to note that even in the most rural parts of South County Dublin, that reinforcements are never really that far away. Barrack attacks usually consist of a bomb being lobbed at the building, followed immediately by a burst of gunfire police then usually respond with heavy fire, often with machine gun. Volunteers then intermittently fire off a number of shots before retreating, before the arrival of of military or auxiliary reinforcements. The psychological impact of these attacks though for the constables that are held up inside can't be underestimated. So not knowing when the next attack is going to come. And when you read British reports, police often thought they were coming under attack from a large number of volunteers as opposed to the The handful of men actually taking part in the attack. And despite the strong police defences, they could be heavy affairs. In one incident, volunteers drove past Cavintilly Barracks. They managed to lob a bomb into the sandbag enclosure where a number of policemen are are standing smoking. This took place here in the middle of the day. Another occasion, a black and tan shot while tending to the garden at the rear of Cavintilly Barracks. He dies a couple of weeks later and uh, black and tans from from Cavintilly entered the home of a local volunteer, Thomas Murphy, and, and shoot him dead in front of his family. And uh, it's worth noting, these sniping attacks, they don't just take place in rural districts. So the military base in Dunleary, which is situated in the vicinity of the Coast Guard Station, comes under regular attack during the spring and summer months. Follows the exact same pattern as the barrack attacks, albeit without the, the use of explosives. I think the IRA's war on communications is at least more visible in the county as opposed to the city. So this campaign is intended to disrupt British command and control, as well as lines of communication. So putting under attack what one historian described, great quote, as the arteries through which the lifeblood of the British effort flowed. So this meant the block of entrenching and the roads, the destruction of bridges, cutting telephone and telegraph wires and raiding the mails. So by raiding the mails, holding up postmen or or post offices, seizing the mails and sifting through them to see if they could gather any valuable information. And these operations become a daily occurrence in the county from March 1921 onwards. The trenching of roads and the destruction of bridges, I believe it's only really possible in rural areas, owing to the time involved and the large number of men that you need to mobilise. Now I may be open to correction on that, it it may have taken place in in the city also, but I mean they're destroyed by hand, by pick and shovel. So there's a lot of time involved in that and a large body of men are needed. So it's very hard to do that unnoticed, as there's only ever, as we said, a small core a group of volunteers in each company that actually engage in combat. For most volunteers, it's operations like these that form the mainstay of activity. And I think for residents, it's really the most visible manifestation. Of the IRA's presence. Civilians have to contend with these operations on a daily basis, roads being blocked when they're going about their business or bridges being destroyed. These operations take place every
2: single day of the week. Yeah, we mentioned the impact on civilians in terms of inconvenience, blocking roads. We've also mentioned, Liz, you know, civilians being killed accidentally in the crossfire of armed engagements. But, what about the deliberate targeting of civilians, Liz, by the IRA and also by Crown Forces in Dublin City?
3: So you have, of course, more on informers, you know, people who are passing on information, and that continues right through the War of Independence. And then, of course, if there is an attack by the IRA, generally it was the civilians that suffer the reprisals um, and the auxiliaries go to known Republican houses, supporters of Sinn Féin, and in, in a lot of cases they're killed, as, as James has talked about there. And there's one instance, and Cathy Scuffle mentioned this, she, just, she found out this story about Thomas Doyle in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday, that the auxiliaries go to this house on Cork Street, so in the 4th Battalion area, but it seems that they were looking for his brother who was involved, a non-Republican, but Thomas was out his back garden and he was just, you know, washing himself. And he was shot dead. And this is as a direct reprisal for the events on Bloody Sunday. Most famously, you have the shooting of Lynch in the Exchange Hotel in September 1920. They taught the intelligence officers and the auxiliaries, you know, it's only across the road from Dublin Castle where they're based. They think it's Liam Lynch. So obviously Liam Lynch, well known. And John Lynch was the shooting fence supporter. And he is shot. He's killed by them. And then, of course, you have the fake news coming out about, you know, what happened there. But one of the officers, I know could be wrong in this, it's either Begali or Ames, I think, that's involved in that shooting. And, of course, then they're targeted on the morning of Bloody Sunday by Collins' assassins. So you have that right up to the end, on up to the truce. You have civilians, people who are giving information to... The authorities to the Crown Forces. Um, and, you know, the, we know of the informers being shot around the country. It happened in Dublin. And I suppose one of the more well known examples is the shooting of uh, Shankers Ryan in February. And it took a while to get him, but Shankers Ryan was the one that had informed on McKay and Clancy on the eve of Bloody Sunday. He had followed them to uh, Sean Fitzpatrick's house in Gloucester Street and he it Dublin Castle that these men were there and of course Mackey and Clancy are then killed in the guard room in Dublin Castle and the IRA were determined to get him it happened in February 1921 and he was shot in broad daylight in the pub so yeah it happened and it happened on both sides but whereas with the IRA it would be targeting known informers there were mistakes made but then with the auxiliaries, it would more often not be in retaliation to attack. So you wouldn't necessarily guess someone that was actually a member of the IRA. In a lot of cases, it was, you know, mistaken identity or, you know, just someone that was in the wrong place at the wrong time.
2: And James, on that topic, the killing of informers, you know, one of the most controversial kind of debates that still rumbles on about the nature of the IRA campaign and especially the killing of informers was that they were deliberately going after people who were, for example, ex-servicemen or who were unionists or who were Protestants. Now, the one place where there was no shortage of any of those categories was County Dublin. So how does that play out, do you think?
0: There's three civilians shot by the IRA as spies in South County Dublin. Two are Protestants and one is a Catholic. The, the, the Catholic is actually a volunteer, a member of the Dunleary Company, who was discovered to be passing information and he was shot in Kalini Golf Links. It's a lot easier to research an ambush than it is the shooting of a civilian as a spy, because I believe that there was a huge reluctance on the part of volunteers to speak about it. For instance, Arthur Barden from Dundrum, he's a timekeeper in in the Guinness Brewery. He's shot as a spy in May 1921. According to Paddy Brennan, he was someone who openly associated with, with TANS and he believed that they had received concrete information that he was passing information to the authorities and the decision was taken to execute him. Now, when the decision was taken to execute him, Brennan and a couple of others were assigned the task, and by his account, he was crestfallen. Himself and the group of men were absolutely crestfallen. They went out to the La Scala theater in town, and when the show was finished, he brought them around to a church and explained to them what they had to do. He said that he'd been in combat many times, and he said that there's a huge difference between shooting at someone you know, from a distance or or, or even hitting someone from a distance. But it's a lot more intimate when you have to take a man and shoot him, you know. What happened in that instance was, unbeknownst to them, one of their group took it upon himself to carry out the the task himself and shot Barden while he was on his way to work. And by Brennan's own account, he said he remained grateful to that man for the rest of his life. There were certainly reluctance to talk about the shooting of spies. So it's very hard to ever get the full picture, as far as the three spies that were shot in the South County, I mean, the IRA were adamant, you know, that that these were involved. But yet, two were Protestant, one was Catholic. But I, I personally haven't found any real evidence of a sectarian dimension to the IRA's campaign in the county. Protestants provided the main target for arms raiding, and there's no question of that. But these were families that generally had a tradition of service in the British Army, and to put it simply. That's where the arms were. I've always maintained if the guns were in the possession of Dublin's Jewish community, that's where the IRA would have gone. There's no doubt Protestants were at best viewed as passive supporters of the Crown, but I haven't come across any overt Protestant sentiment on, on the part of the IRA in the county. But that's not to dismiss Protestant fears out of hand either. In December 1919, there's a meeting of the Irish Unionist Alliance at the Parochial Hall in Glenigiri, and a speaker comments that... Sinn Féin had seized every pistol and blunderbuss that they possessed not with the object of arming themselves but to disarm the loyalists they had in fact disarmed them so thoroughly that these people could not defend their own houses so that's not to say that there weren't real fears there earlier that year the IRA received a report that UVF carbines are being stored in the homes of prominent unionists in Dundrum and this seems to be a recurrent theme there's, there's often reports of the of parochial halls and whatnot being raided for UVF weapons. Volunteers raid Taney Church and Belfry, and they also tear up floorboards in Taney Protestant School and the parochial hall. So I'm sure to a local Protestant, you know, raiding this place of worship could be viewed as highly offensive, but at the same time, I don't think volunteers were too concerned about offending sensibilities when it came to looking for arms. There is also some evidence of Protestant volunteers in the South County. John Coates, from Fox Rock Village, was arrested in May 1921 for a volunteer activity. He was a Protestant who served in the South Irish Horse during the First World War. His brother had been killed during the German Spring Offensive, and he's commemorated on a plaque in Tully Church War Memorial in Carrick Mines. Also, George Gilmore, famous lifelong Republican Socialist, and his brothers were were active members of the Black Rock Company during that time. And that's just a handful of there. I I mean, I'm sure there were others there, as I'm sure there were in the city also.
2: So Liz, if I can come back to you, one of the most famous episodes in Dublin after Bloody Sunday in the War of Independence is the raid on the Customs House in May 1921, where the building is destroyed, but a lot of volunteers are captured. Now, you've pushed back against the narrative that this was the end of the Dublin IRA and a disaster for the Dublin IRA, haven't you?
3: Yeah, it's the 2nd Battalion John that are really affected by the Custom House attack and the Active Service Unit because you had members of the Active Service Unit, particularly the 2nd Battalion and that are in the building. The 2nd Battalion itself, because the Custom House was in their area of operation, they're the ones that go into the building so it's primarily those that are in the building that get arrested but the number bandied about as in how many were involved has always being 120 that's who were in the building and you've got like upwards of 90 arrested however as i've discovered with researching this is that close to 300 men and at least four or five women were involved in this operation you had to have that huge support so every battalion was involved in this operation so it's a sword um, of the people that are involved that are arrested in terms of the the capabilities of the IRA after that, you have Liam O'Flaherty of the Fifth Battalion, he's the OC of the engineers. Like he came out very strongly saying, you know, the 3rd Battalion were were well able to carry on and they did that. And you see an increase in the attacks because after the customs, it's a bit like Bloody Sunday. And it's the nature of the War of Independence that the British have successes against the IRA. It looks like they're defeated and then the IRA come back. And we have to remember this, John, the IRA only had to exist. The British had to completely destroy them. The drain on the, the sort of ability of the British to carry on this conflict, the support that they were losing in Britain, this all ties into it. But if you look at the actions then after the Custom House, like the IRA are back out on the attack very soon after the Custom House raid because it looks to the British, we've got, you know, 100 men in custody. That's the Dunn Brigade wiped out. It wasn't. The 4th Battalion then really began to step up. The 4th Battalion, they were, you know, doing their own thing as they always were. Um, and there's an instance with, I think it's a company of the 3rd Battalion, Italian, they became so active, were, were really, you know, opened the game that they were stood down because they're carrying out too many attacks in their area. Ammunition is always the huge problem. It plagued the IRA. Guns you could get, and even to that with the guns that were uh, lost in the Custom House, it said that a huge number of guns were lost in that attack. The Fire Brigade actually managed to retrieve a lot of the weapons that were dumped in the Custom House, and they were back in the hands of the IRA very, very quickly. But the IRA shifts their methods because they then begin to attack the transport the support network of the Crown forces. Because it was also discovered, John, that a horse was actually more valuable than a man, as in it cost the authorities more. If you shot a horse, it cost the British government more than a soldier so you start to see the attacks change in that the famous one is the attack on the shell factory in june where they take out literally armored cars and military tenders that means that you know lots of soldiers cannot get from a to b armored cars cannot you know be used to patrol the streets troop trains begin to be attacked and then of course we have the introduction of the Thompson submachine gun now, there were 500 left in Hoboken, but um, a number of them did get through and they began to be used. So, yeah, the Dublin Brigade, it wasn't defeated. They did still carry on their actions. And as I said, the IRA only had to exist. The British had to completely destroy them. And that's exactly what happens. As in, you know, the IRA did exist. They continued to arrest the authorities. So, you know, something had to happen. And then it's the British that sue for peace with no conditions, which was a huge, huge uh, change from, you know, December 1920, when they were putting out the peace fielders, but the conditions were attached. By May, June 1921, that was gone. They're the ones that were looking for the truth.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, there's... Kind of two parallel things going on, isn't there? There's talks in the background the whole time. At the same time, there is unquestionably a a move by Lord George from you have to surrender and give up your arms to we will talk about independence. Without preconditions, you can continue to exist as an armed force. That's a, a massive shift by the time of the truce.
3: It is, John, and Richard Mulcahy makes that point because when we have, like, if you look at, you know, the response from the men in prison at that time, and, you know, it's, it's obviously huge because this had never happened before. But the big point that Richard Mulcahy made was is that they, the British, were the ones that asked for this. We didn't. So, you know, the greatest empire that the world has ever seen has said to us, we want to negotiate, we want to talk with you but there's no conditions. So that was a huge victory, moral victory, if you want, for want of a better word, for the IRA that they had brought and Sinn Féin and the whole Republican movement had brought the British to the negotiating table on their terms.
2: Yeah, I mean, just one more comment to you, Liz. If you read the British military record of the rebellion, as they called it, You know, they they write that the IRA in Dublin was defeated. They were harried from pillar to post, is the way they put it. But at the same time, they say we were no longer in a position to carry out offensive operations. So I wonder if this is a kind of a contradiction.
3: It is, John. And again, like for every, you know, reaction by the British, it drove more people into the support of Sinn Féin and the Republican movement. And again, you don't have to have the big attacks. You don't have to have, you know, these massive ambushes. You just have to exist. And Harry, and and James talked about this earlier, the psychological impact on the Crown forces was huge. That cannot be underestimated. And if you look at what Winston Churchill was proposing to do in Dublin, or in Ireland, if the conflict continues, like, this whole country was going to become a police state. There was going to be barbed wire across the whole country, you know, setting up pillboxes, you know, and seizing everyone's bicycles. That is not a sign of a victorious government, you know, that has a situation under control. And the big thing, John, is the propaganda war is so, so crucial to this whole conflict. And when you start to lose that support at home, which was happening in Britain, that's, again, another game changer.
2: And James, how does the situation look, the military and political situation, I suppose, from the South County at the time of the truce?
0: The South County, certainly unaffected by the burn of the customs house and, and any losses that might have been incurred in the city. The 6th Battalion took part in a number of barrack attacks on the night of the burn of the customs house and an attack on the military installation in Dunleary, which I believe would have been coordinated, I suppose, to possibly, you know, draw troops out from the city. But I mean, they wouldn't have suffered any losses or, or anything like that. I mean, they, they were largely unaffected. And I think the campaign in the county was continuing there was no momentum really lost, certainly in June 1921. I certainly don't believe that the, the battalion was on its knees out here by, by any stretch of the imagination. Andy MacDonald did say that when news of the truce was received that there were few regrets amongst his staff, if any. But I don't believe that that was necessarily a sign of fatigue. I mean, he, he could have been looking at it from a going into that they were going into negotiations from a, from a position of strength.
2: Yeah, I mean, just, I guess, a final question then, which is about, like, the construction of of the narrative about the War of Independence in Dublin. I mean, you know, this thing of that the IRA was in dire straits in Dublin is, I think, bound up to do with the treaty split because the GH, you know, maintains this to show the validity of the treaty and the anti-treaty. I'd say, well, no, that wasn't true. I I think it's a partisan debate. Would you guys agree with me on that? Um, Liz, I'll come to you first.
3: Um, I would, John. I think the civil war has a lot to do with the narrative of the War of Independence and the Custom House is a prime example of this. You know, the Dev Collins argument, Dev's idea, Collins was against it. And it's like, at the end of the day, Collins is the one that messes up the plans. In terms of weaponry, ammunition, you know, ammunition is the big thing. But if we look at what was being planned, If there had been no truce, what the IRA were planning to do, you had, you know, plans for another bloody Sunday because, again, the intelligence war was still going on. Collins was planning another bloody Sunday. You have the big operation, which is going to be bigger than the custom house, and that was the shooting up. And this was literally called off on the 10th of July. And if you look at the brigade activity reports for the Dublin Brigade. Every single battalion, they give a list of the attacks that happened, you know, 1921, 1920. And all of them have a 10th of July big operation cancelled. And this was a shoot up where, because we had a curfew. So the only people out on the streets in the evening were the military. And the IRA had planned to basically descend on O'Connell Street and just come from every corner. And they were going to shoot anything that was in Connell Street. So it would be the auxiliaries, the military, in possibly some cases, their girlfriends that are with them. And this was literally called off. As the guys are going to take part in this operation, it was called off. The IRA were going to take the war to Britain. Now, there had been events in Britain at that time, but as in they were going to start targeting the families of auxiliaries. In Florida O'Donoghue's papers, you have the list of the names and addresses of auxiliaries. So stuff that was happening here, where the auxiliaries were going and the Black and Tans were going to the houses of Sinn Féiners and uh, Republicans, and they were, you know, killing the people and so on. Well, the IRA were going to start doing that. They were not going to target the auxiliaries, but they were going to target their loved ones, their wives, their families. So it was going to get an awful lot worse, John. And the truce stopped it.
2: James, do you want to say something on that?
0: Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with Liz. I certainly don't believe that the IRA in Dublin, uh, again, were, were on its knees by the time of the truce. Attacks on barracks were continuing right throughout June and into July. There's an attack on the military in Dalky three days before the truce. The IRA were, were as active as ever or they weren't suffering arrests on a scale that they weren't suffering in the months prior to it. OK,
2: well, Liz and James, thank you very much. That was a very interesting survey of Dublin City and County during the War of Independence, which is, of course, 100 years old, the end of it, 100 years old this year. Thank you very much. And from me, John Dorney, and from my absent friend, Kyle Brennan, today,
1: goodbye. So that was my co-presenter, John Dorney, speaking to Liz Gillis and James Brady about the IRA in Dublin during the War of Independence. So you can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the irish history show if you get a chance please take a moment to rate and review the show on itunes spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts it really helps us we really do appreciate it and we're so grateful for all the support we get from you the listeners so my name is cahill brennan and until next time thank you very much for listening
0: Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast, because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.